for March 2nd, 2020. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 609. You might call it Sonic. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are standing around and telling people how to load their dishwasher. We're like the backseat drivers, but of dishwashers, right? Like, uh, what do you call that? Not a backseat driver, not a Monday morning quarterback, but the little, the little angel on your shoulder telling you that you can do better. You can, you're capable of loading your dishwasher better. Uh, I'm Matt Rather, and that's uh, Matt Belinke. Hello, Matt. How are you? Matt, do you think it's wrong to put the cups facing up so that they fill up with the dishwasher water oh as God, the dishwasher you're goes? You're a monster. Ever since our last episode, my friends have been tro- my my smart, funny friends from the internet have been a, a, a gaggle of unmitigated trolls, just uh, just irking me at every at every opportunity. But not my good friend Pete Fenzel, who who knows right from wrong. Isn't that right, Pete? <laughs> Yes, Matt. And in fact, while I'm thrilled that we were repped by no less than consumer reports themselves praising our dishwasher loading commentary at episode, uh, I am I am perhaps a little bit thrilled that we are not diving into hour two of dishwasher loading with a with a follow up today. But we'll be in fact departing to another topic. That's right. Washing machines, guys. Exactly. What if you have a giant duvet cover and you have to put it in the washing machine? You have an old top loader with the central, the central spindle. The answer may surprise you right after that. No, uh, I was, I've never felt so famous as when Consumer Reports, a print magazine that I have subscribed to for years and years, uh, decided to feature our, our uh, Overthinking It podcast about their dishwasher loading feature on uh, their Facebook page. So, you know, you go, go find us on Facebook to, uh, to check that out. I've, I've never felt so famous, you know? Um, but, you know, I, what this, this week we thought Overthinking It is an audio medium. You might call it Sonic. That was more of a that was more of a giggle, uh, Pete, than that than that deserved. But uh, you know, I uh, I never played Sonic the Hedgehog really because it was after I uh, sort of gave up video games. But I saw my little brother play it a lot on the Sega Genesis. Pete, did you have a uh, did you have a Sega Genesis to play to play Sonic on? No, but my sister did have a Sega Game Gear, which added an additional meta theatrical element to the Sonic game. Because the batteries would run out in two and a half hours, so you had to play it fast, 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 to not stop. Yeah, for sure. And Blinky, did you have a uh, did you have a, a Sega Genesis to play Sonic on? So not only did I not have a Sega Genesis, but I was a huge snob and would judge would judge the 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 character and worthiness of anybody who voluntarily owned a Sega Genesis because it was sort of like for me it was like a, a huge brand loyalty thing. Like I was like a Nintendo man. I had a pin, a golden pin for getting the first hundred issues of Nintendo Power, and I wore it I to try. I wore it to school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that Sega Genesis is the enemy. There's sort of the way that like people who are huge Marvel fanboys will like root for DC movies to lose money, like as if the existence of like a Superman movie like offends them. Uh and it needs to be like expunged from uh, from the pages of variety. Um so yeah, like I was not uh, like 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 Sonic the Hedgehog and 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 if I found myself sort of tempted by Sonic the Hedgehog, I had this like puritan um, sort of uh, the shame and this sort of the way that like the bad guy and the hunchback of Notre Dame like wants to wants to kill Catherine Zeta Jones because he's sort of tempted by her. Um, like that's how I felt about Sonic. Just like imagine me in my cathedral, like thinking about how like so, this the uh, Sonic the Hedgehog needs to be destroyed because he's like so fast that like I just my 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 fingers are itching to to, to make him make him uh, curl up in a little ball and go around the loop de loop. So the the answer is no, Matt. <laughs> Did you have a Sega Genesis, Matt? Yeah, well, uh, my my little brother played it 
played it mostly. That was, uh, you know, uh, that was after I had given up video games. So the um, the Sonic. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! You gave up video games? Yeah, I don't like things that I'm I'm not good at immediately. Uh, they they uh. just mess with my self esteem. So I uh, I give them up. I you know, and and then I um I make my abstinence like I I make it a pose as though it's like a superior virtue. So you know, if if Matt was a snob at things that weren't the NES or the Super NES, uh, I was a snob for everything, um, just everything, and it's it's carried in, into my adult life. Have you heard me talk about dishwashers? Uh, so uh, you might as well mention it. Yep. I I understand that. Um, I I understand Matt that that you have uh, gotten over your antipathy towards the uh, the Sonic family of products and uh, experienced a brand extension of the Sonic family, um, you know, this weekend. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I've gotten over, although I feel like on the subject, I should mention the fact that I've never to this day eaten in a Wendy's because I grew up uh, loving McDonald's to such an extent that like, I felt like the Wendy's that was across the street was like the enemy. Uh, and to this day, I've never eaten a meal at a Wendy's. I'm aware that they have square hamburgers, but like, and I'm, I'm intrigued, but not intrigued enough to like break the streak. At, th- at this point, I'll admit there's a little bit of like, I like to tell people I've never eaten in a Wendy's, so I'm not going to do it if I can avoid it. Um, sort of the way that like, I think we have a friend who like didn't see Titanic for a while. And then after a while, like having not seen Titanic is like a thing that you hang your hat on. It's like part of your identity. Yeah, it's like it's like, like it's like you and the wire. Yeah, no, no, I'm not not seeing the wire. For, well, maybe a little bit. Anyway, uh, no, I did. I saw the Sonic the Hedgehog movie this weekend, uh, and it was really fun. I feel like nowadays it's hard to find these movies that fall into the sweet spot where like uh, an adult an adult would would not just tolerate but enjoy seeing it but it's not just like a little kid could see it it's that a teenager would see it and not feel like they were uh, having to tolerate it in exchange for like uh, some sort of online overwatch currency they could use to buy like a a cool skin for Chinese New Year Um yeah, the other movies that like really fall in that sweet spot are like the Jumanji movies that are like, you know, they're not violent enough. Like you could take like, I mean, maybe not like a toddler, but like you could take like, you know, a kid under 10 to see them. And then the teenagers could also see it and the adults will see it. And there's enough in there so that everybody will enjoy it. So it's like Sonic the Hedgehog is like a movie where it's like the little kids would like it because it has this legitimately cute uh, animated hedgehog that like runs really fast. Um but then there also is like it's got these uh, fun little pop culture references. Like there's one point where he's um he's fighting like you know the flying robots from the video game. These like uh these sort of drones that are zipping around uh, and like firing lasers, and he's like sort of jumping from drone to drone, and he just sort of like uh like turns to the audience. He's like, I can't believe Amazon wants to deliver packages with these things. And I feel like maybe the way I say it, it sounds really forced, but in the context of the movie, I thought it was pretty charming. Um. And there's one there's there's one scene where he is uh he knocked unconscious and he sort of comes to and he does one of these like where am I what year is it is the Rock president just a big throwaway and they're like no Sonic the Rock is not president it's only been five minutes uh, and, and Sonic has this like brief momentary look of disappointment that the Rock isn't president yet before he's like all right so what's next um yeah I thought it was I thought it was really cute I'm glad that James Marston continues to get work it makes me want to. Uh, IMDb James Marston to figure out how old he actually is because he's still playing I would say like a fairly young man who's like a recently married and like doesn't have any kids but I mean he was a Cyclops like 20 something years ago so like I gotta be in his late 40s right uh, I, mean, we, we think so. yeah. uh we're googling him as you as you speak yeah so. if, only, if only there was some uh, website where I could google that the, guess uh, we'll never know <laughs> uh <laughs> So yeah, I mean, Matt, what you say? James Marsden is forty-six years old. He is, he is forty-six years old. His birthday That's... is in September. He was born in Stillwater, Oklahoma, in nineteen seventy-three. Like all good things. sounds about right. I mean, of course, it's, it's Hollywood, so he's playing like thirty-five, pretty convincingly, maybe early thirties. Yeah, but, um, it's, but it's funny. His his love interest was fourteen. Yeah, I suppose. Wait, I, I, no, it's. Uh, it was a joke. Maybe, maybe did, did I just step over the line a little bit with that joke? It's a joke about how old men have very young love interests. 
I feel like you don't have to exaggerate it because it usually is absurd, right? It's like if it's Tom Cruise, then if he's got a love interest, she's going to be 30 and he's going to be like 106. Well, here, uh, while, is, does, while I talk, somebody Googled the love interest in this movie. Um, okay, hold on. The and, and love out, interest the in this age. movie. I don't her remember her name. Tika Sumter, right? Okay. Sounds and about she, right. She's a, she's a, is it a, she's an actress and model. Um, Euphemia Latique Sumter. She was born in June 20th, 1980 and is 39 years old. So she's okay, so that's actually age appropriate. Yeah. But but uh, that's a fair amount of restraint considering it's Hollywood. I did think it was it was maybe noticeable that they are uh an interracial couple in this movie that she she is is uh black, she's dark skinned and uh I don't know exactly what race she is, but she does have a a, a, a like a, a very uh classically sort of like a sassy black uh large uh, older sister who's like the comic relief who shows up like midway through the movie and is like very disapproving of James Marsden and like makes a lot of like funny jokes about how she needs to divorce him uh, for good reason, because he's wanted by the government, by multiple government agencies. <laughs> at this point of the movie. So like okay, she has, good, she good. has a point. Um, You've never wanted me to be happy, big sister. Look, I'm only trying to help you. Your boyfriend is literally an international fugitive. What, what kind of environment is that to raise a hedgehog in? Yeah, it is. So one of the interesting things about this movie is that Sonic from scene to scene is either sort of coded as like a, a, a friend, you know, as if it's like a sort of a buddy movie. Right. And they're, they're sort of like sharing cultural references and they're like hanging out in like bars together, you know, and like obviously James Marsden is like the straight man. But uh, and, and Sonic is like more of the wacky one. But then in other scenes, Sonic is very much supposed to be like the child, right? And he is like the the child that like completes this family and taking responsibility for Sonic is like the sort of step into manhood that James Marsden sort of needs to take. Um, and that I mean, I don't think it's uh, I suppose spoilers for the end of Sonic, but like the end is that like Sonic moves into their house and they've set up a room for Sonic in their house as like as if they're adopting him. And he's like incredibly touched because he spent his whole life like alone, sort of hiding from people. Um, and the fact, you know, so so then like it. It is, and it's true that like when he has a when you see his room towards the beginning, he has a sort of a cave that he's adapted, and it's like full of like kid stuff. Like he's got like a tire swing, and he's got like a beanbag chair, and it's like a cool. It's like a he's he's like a teenager, right? Um, but there definitely are scenes where it's more just like um, it, it it doesn't seem like James Barnes is like an authority figure. It seems like they're like friends and he's like trying to get like James Marsden to loosen up and everything. Um, it's amazing, by the way, that I've gotten to this point in describing the movie and I have not talked about Jim Carrey, who really is the the special sauce. Um, and it is it's it's one of these like fun historical accidents that like there are all these these video games that were created in the eighties with little to no thought about like, what is the story? What is the, the cohesive idea for the world, right? That like the character of Dr. Robotnik in Japan was originally known as just Eggman because his, his <laughs> head is egg shaped, I guess. Um, and he's just like a mad scientist with a large mustache and sort of black goggles. And that's as far as, it goes that he is like the broadest sort of most cartoonish archetype possible. And then it falls upon like, you know, 25 years later, a bunch of screenwriters have to come up with like a fully fleshed out backstory for Dr. Robotnik and exactly like how many PhDs does he have and what is his relationship to the United States government? And like, you know, what is his uh, sources of funding and his staffing issues? And it's like, and it's, it's fun to watch them like try to like basically, Come up with this idea, like reverse engineer this idea with this ridiculous mustache. Um, and the casting of Jim Carrey is a masterstroke because, first of all, it is a thoroughly ridiculous character, uh, inherently ridiculous character. And Jim Carrey in full Ace Ventura mugging mode is probably like the only choice for really doing it justice. But it also, you know, really plays into this nostalgia. Um, that I think is is critical for like this movie to hit all quadrants that like the the parents 
are going to love seeing Jim Carrey just because he's Jim Carrey in a little bit of a retro mode. Whereas like the kids will enjoy seeing Jim Carrey just because he's a funny guy with a funny mustache. who's like making silly faces. So he is, he is uh, thoroughly delightful and I'm glad to Jim Carrey, obviously in, in recent years has like done some serious work. He's moved away from this sort of like pure comedy and he totally entitled to do so. But it is nice to see him just sort of like get back to something that is silly and light and frivolous uh, because I don't quite know anybody else who could pull this off the way he did. What so what's in it for the teenagers? I get I get what you're saying for the grownups and for the the younger kids, but uh you said it's a it's a three generation movie, right? So uh if you went with a, a 5-year-old, a 15-year-old and a and a 65-year-old like yourself, what uh you know, what what did the middle member of that that trio get out of it? I mean, there are definitely pop culture references that I think are funny if you're like a teenager. Uh, there, I think the action is legitimately fun to watch. So, you know, those, um, those scenes in the latter day X-Men movies with Quicksilver where like time would basically stop and Quicksilver would run around and like collect the bullets and like sort of like place a variety of objects in interesting spots so that when time restarts, like everybody in the room just sort of falls down and then just sort of looks around confusedly at Quicksilver just sort of like shrugs. Uh, they do that a bunch in this movie where, like, basically you see sort of time stop and Sonic runs around and, like, creates mischief, right? In a way, you know, jumps gleefully from missile to missile or just sort of brushes bullets out of the air uh, like they're raindrops. Um, and so, like, you know, it's it's I think it's it's got some action that is, like, legitimately fun for somebody who is like you know maybe used to marvel movies mm. uh although i mean it's not it's not big budget on that scale but it, i think it, it definitely spreads that um i think it bridges that gap nicely between like the scenes that are just supposed to be funny um i mean there's there's one scene that the trailer completely gives it away but like they're trying to like get up to the top of a building and they don't want anyone to see Sonic, and so they sort of put him in a gym bag, but he just keeps complaining, and somebody, like, while they're waiting for the elevator, somebody says, did you put your child in that bag? And James Martin is like, no. And then he, then he thinks that, like, oh, that's not plausible. And he's like, no, I mean, it, it is a child, but it's not mine. Uh, and everyone just sort of edges away from him. And I thought that played very well. Like, the little kids maybe didn't enjoy that that much, but, like, the older kids are like, oh, that's, like, people think that James Marston is super creepy. The little kids um, the little kids felt scared. Maybe. <laughs> but, the, but the older kids felt great to terrorize the little kids. No, no, no. I, I get it. And I agree with you. It's a hard, it's a hard kind of two, two hold needle to thread, right? I feel like, I feel like parent child movies are, are a lot easier than parent child child, uh, movies right especially right. if you're especially if the kids are of of kind of like more more of a significant uh, age difference so like so thumbs up generally for the you, you feel like it the sonic the hedgehog movie collected most of the golden rings yeah i think that's a fair way to put it i mean just i think i'd like to contrast it with at the beginning there was a preview for like peter rabbit 2 and peter rabbit 2 was like another movie about for, first blood um Oh, wow. If only. Um, it's a movie about, like, you know, uh, where it's got computer-generated animals, mainly the titular rabbit, um, but then, like, real people, right? And it's about the relationship between, like, real human actors and, like, you know, Paddington is another one of those. There's probably, I mean, there's a whole bunch, right, where there's, like, an animated central character, you know, who, like, sort of is befriended. Uh, by these sort of human characters. But the difference is that like a Paddington or a Peter Rabbit is pretty much just for the little kids and the parents will go and the parents may tolerate it and enjoy it. And there may be a few sides, but it's not, it doesn't try to do this sort of like tongue in cheek, a lot of pop culture references, um, a lot of, you know, I, I thought, I thought that uh, Sonic. Yeah. I agree with you. It was a difficult line to, but I think it, it towed it nicely. Um, you know, another thing that I liked about Sonic is that it feels like there are a lot of tropes in a movie like this that Sonic didn't feel the need to bother with. Um, like, one of them is that, like, Sonic is so obviously a cartoon character, an animated character, that it feels like, you know, obviously if anyone saw Sonic, they're going to react 
uh, with shock, right? But then there's a scene in this movie where Sonic wants to he's sort of conflicted because now that he's been discovered he needs to leave earth he needs to to go to the next sort of worlds i think this is a nice little nod to video games that there are these sort of completely different uh worlds that sonic travels to and so that like the question is like is it time for him to go to the next world uh because he's like in danger of being discovered but he is sort of in love with earth and there's all these things that he's never seen before and so he wants to go to a biker bar because he sees it out the window of his car. James Marsden's like has stopped by like a like to get gas, and Sonic sees this biker bar, which is like you know the ex, you know it's got like all these hot rods and motorcycles on the outside, and everybody's like carousing. And Sonic really wants to go in, and so Sonic uh, puts on a cowboy hat and sunglasses and goes in the bar, and 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 nobody notices him. And I thought it was really <laughs> delightful. That the, the, the sort of like the movie didn't even really stick to the sort of like obvious, even though earlier in the movie, obviously when James Marsden first sees Sonic, but it was like as, as if the fact that he puts on a cowboy hat is like enough that like in this scene, he's going to be able to like line dance and like hit on women and like, you know, do shots at the bar and it won't uh, and like nobody will acknowledge the fact that he's clearly a, a blue cartoon character who's like three feet tall. And I thought that that was really delightful that they didn't hold themselves. And it's funny because like in another movie, I feel like if I like this movie less, I'd be criticizing it for the same reason. I'd be like, there was a completely ridiculous scene where Sonic pretty much just goes out in public, and because he's wearing the sunglasses, nobody notices him. And, like, that's how little respect it has for the audience. But I feel like this movie sort of understood that, like, people don't need this movie to make coherent sense. People just want to see Sonic do fun things, and that means having Sonic interact with other people besides James Marsden. And if Sonic just has to hide in the backseat of the car under a blanket, um, it's going to be a less fun movie than if Sonic can go and get into a literal bar fight um, and have to do, like, you know, like Looney Tunes-esque, you know, where he has to, like, jump really high in the air to, like, punch a guy in the face. Uh, and the guy just sort of like shrugs it. There's like a scene where he like tries to um, uh, break a bottle over a guy's head. Oh, and this is another one of those pop culture movies is that like he's a big fan of uh, he's only like really interacted with the world through movies. And I mean, th- this felt a little like pandering that like he obviously idolizes Keanu Reeves because it's 2020. And like that's that's sort of shorthand for like this 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 guy's plugged into youth culture, which is weird, man. It's weird that like the shortest, the easiest way to sort of signify that like you are you are um, with it as like you know in, with youth culture is loving Keanu Reeves. This is not the first time I've stumbled upon this, by the way. I went to a Broadway musical last year called Be More Cool, uh, Be More Chill. Be More Chill, um, which is kind of like, I guess it was a, a little bit of a cult hit with the theater kids. Um, and the premise of that is that, like, you sort of uh, you swallow a little uh, pill-sized nanocomputer that implants itself in your brain and tells you what to do in order to be cool, right? It just sort of, like, dictates what you should say, what you should wear, who you should hang out with. And you could you could uh, predict the lesson that the kid learns at the end. But the computer is... Um, it, it, it sort of manifests itself to him through the avatar of Keanu Reeves because the premise is that, like, if you're a teenager in 2020, I guess 2019 at that point, Keanu Reeves is the coolest guy that you could think of. And I don't know. We could probably dissect that, the fact that, like... It's also, it's I mean, probably, it's true that, that Keanu Reeves is not just cool. He's a cool in ways that, that kids would recognize as cool and that he does not seem to be subject to the kinds of, you know, humiliations or pressures of, of adolescence or high school. But, excuse me, he's cool also in a way that grownups would approve of and recognize as cool in that he has a he seems to have very strong integrity and like he he you know marches to the beat of his own drum but like treats people treats people decently and that that like kind of internal voice or that sort of sense of of right and wrong seems to be more important to him than than you know fame and fortune so like uh keanu reeves is like a four quad four quadrant cool guy yeah. And let's, Anyways, let's also sir. say, for for a moment, just point out, for all of the naysayers who would suggest that there's nothing about contemporary popular culture that has any sort of moral credibility to it or that there's been no sort of forward motion or ameliorative energy in this sort of popular consensus, the idea that Keanu Reeves is the coolest person because he's humble, admirable, and generous and kind 
is, uh, you know, that's not who we thought was cool in the 90s. <laughs> like, so I want to say that that indicates a bit of a forward motion in things and perhaps an improvement. Cool. I thought, um, I thought though, I thought Keanu Reeves was cool, but I thought that, that he was cool mostly because of the bullet time camera, uh, oh, yeah. you know, in, in the Matrix. Matt, I don't want to, I don't want to cut you off, but I, I do want to ask Pete a question, which is that I, I gather that the, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, I mean, Matt, Matt describes a sort of delightful romp. But but I gather it might have turned out uh, otherwise. Was this a, a troubled film, Pete? When you were writing, and when you were when when uh, I'm sorry, you went Skypey there for a second, Pete. You went you went Skypey there for a second. Um, yeah, when you were writing and directing the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, Pete, were uh, did did you encounter creative difficulties? Look. Sonic had human teeth at one point, and he had tiny eyes, and it made everybody very squeamish and uncomfortable. Yeah. And so, through a large public outcry, the movie studio decided to go back to the drawing board and reimagine Sonic's visual look, in a, as opposed to his auditory look, right, in a way that was more fitting to the expectations of the video game character, and perhaps dwelled a little bit less in that uncanny valley of representation. And, uh, I mean, I think this is a story that a lot of us heard out there, but... I was definitely surprised. I mean, I know you're asking me because I brought this up as a topic of interest in our previous conversation, but I'm legitimately interested in the notion that they came out with this movie and everybody, of course, starts, first of all, it's February, right? Terrible movies are traditionally come out in February. Terrible movies and John Wick come out in February and Deadpool. So it's just, the tide is changing, right? So it's like the more recent February might necessarily have all the terrible movies. But um, but everybody expected the Sonic and the Hedgehog movie to be an abomination because why wouldn't it be, right? It's it just seems like a transparent cash grab on a on a beloved property. Like, what what else could they make a movie out of? And then seeing the early CGI character and and people thinking, oh, he looked so bad. Uh, you would you felt like the whole thing was doomed. Like the culture in general was reveling in the doomedness of this. And that as much as I claimed, oh, this is terrible, you should fix it, or this is terrible, you did such a bad job, this is my sort of negative feedback to you, I don't know if there was really the hope or expectation at the time in the general zeitgeist that the people would go back to the drawing board and actually fix it and actually make it better, and that as we're hearing from Matt today, that the Sonic Hedgehog movie would be pretty good. Uh, and that's exciting. That's, that's a cool idea, this notion that it turns out sometimes things can be fixed or things can be made better. Uh, I mean, did that strike you, Matt? Did, have you seen any of the previous Sonic the Hedgehog coverage and go into this with any sort of trepidation? Or, yeah, um, but I, it's interesting because I, I wonder if that's a fair characterization of what happened. So the Sonic design was widely criticized, and Sonic was redesigned, and presumably all the special effects were re-rendered, and the movie was delayed to allow time for this to happen. But there are a ton of movies that are very heavily reshot, sometimes multiple times. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, like, pull one out of a hat. Like, like you know, and, and nobody even really bats an eye when that happens. Like, if they have to call everyone back and do two more weeks of reshoots after initial screening... People don't necessarily be like, oh, wow, that's a sign that the movie is definitely doomed, right? That, like, it's almost perceived as, like, that's a part of the process, right? They write that into people's contracts. And as far as I know, that didn't even happen with this movie. Like, the initial movie as written, as recorded with James Marsden, was fine. All we're talking about is, like, a really cosmetic update to a, a model in, in Blender or whatever the fancy version of Blender is. So it's it's interesting that this movie is perceived of having been sort of like a victory from the jaws of defeat because I think in terms of like Hollywood, this movie was reworked not let's put it the way, not nearly as much as the X-Men movie with like Sophie Turner that was shot like four years ago and still has not been released. That movie was in, in way more trouble, but like widely perceived it, as it being in trouble. It did come out, Matt. It came out. No, it's not. It it's actually, not. It actually has not come out. No, yet. it's it's not been released, and it never will be released. And and Sophie Turner. In fact, no movie starring Sophie Turner will ever be released. <laughs> Wait, what movie are you talking about? No, it was. It actually uh, did come out. No, no, no. It, it's, it hasn't, I know it hasn't come out because it's coming out on my 40th birthday. Um, and, uh, and I remember the, the reason it's a running gag between like me and my son is we saw a full trailer for it before Dr. Strange, like an IMAX trailer of it. It is, uh, we always call it scary X-Men in our house. 
we've never referred to it as anything but scary X-Men, but it's actually called the uh, X-Men, the, the new club. What is it? Well, I actually don't know what it's called. What is the stupid, uh, the X-Men movie that's still, even though the company has been sold, what, like more than a year ago, like two years ago. It's called uh, X-Men Dark Phoenix. Is it, oh, the, the New Mutants. New Mutants is the name of the movie. X-Men Dark Phoenix came out on June 6th. Oh, the New Mutants one. Oh, that's yeah, different. That's it's different. Crazy. Okay, okay. There's literally oh, sure. an X-Men movie that was shot like four years ago and, you know, multiple reshoots, including like adding or subtracting major characters. And yeah. and they were like putting a budget behind this movie three years ago and it's been pulled up. But it, it is serious to the point where. I mean, not to get like too inside baseball, but I'm pretty sure that they know it's going to lose money. But if they don't release it, they don't have to take the write off yet. You know, it's sort of like whenever they release it, they've got to like uh, take all that, uh, write that whole out for that quarter. But it's like maybe we just don't release it this year and then we don't have to admit that we just lost $100 million. It can sort of be a theoretical loss for the future. I think you're thinking of uh, Maisie Williams and not Sophie Turner because. Oh, I'm sorry. Sophie Turner. There are different people. Mrs. Miss. Two game of with Stark sisters in them, for sure. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not interrupting. Here's how, here's how to remember it, right? Sansa okay. Stark, do-do-do-do-do-do, Sansa Stark, do-do-do-do-do-do, right? And then you do that, and then you say, Arya Stark, do-do-do-do-do-do, Arya Stark. You see? They're completely different. But then what, what wait, you but which one, you, you haven't taught me which one is which, though. <laughs> exactly. Um <laughs> So th- this, I mean, like, uh, I think the idea of sort of fixing things, things that get a reputation as sort of needing to be fixed or like of being fixed, uh, don't, don't do well in Hollywood. And I think there's, I think there's some interesting ways that we narrativize this that are kind of interesting to talk about. So, uh, here's, here are two examples, one like silly and trivial and one a little more serious. Uh, the silly trivial one is the cats movie where, uh, apparently after everyone thought the trailer was super weird, they, uh, redid the cat, like all the cats a little bit. And this is kind of akin to Sonic. Like people thought the character design of Sonic was weird he didn't have the kind of the like the mono eye, you know, the monocular Sonic like they, you know, they, and they they redid him to be a little more a little closer to the kind of the the traditional the traditional renderings. Now, now, um, like the the cat. Cats went to from like the stuff of literal nightmares to being just like mildly uh, uncomfortable, mildly disconcerting, and uh, and also uh, they they actually went back after the movie was released and fixed Judy Tench's wedding ring and the the arm of her spandex jumpsuit that she was wearing. Um, the the more serious example of this that I want to give is solo right which was in the in the process of sort of doing it it was determined that you know uh, it it was not up to snuff in some respect. And so, you know, it was taken away from the original director. It was directed by Ron Howard and, and um, it came, you know, it ended up being not all that, not all that successful and was kind of widely regarded as creatively a failure. And like, uh, this is another one that like needed another, needed another go. I I think this is a, like, this is something that uh, is not really is sort of looked at as bad because I think, you know, I don't know um, what happens, right? When someone else comes in to fix something, the, the original vision is lost, right? Like the idea of the sort of solitary genius, like giving a unifying vision to a motion picture, to a serious work of, of motion picture art, like cats, uh, is, you know, that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a narrative that we have. I, I I have a a counter example to all of this, but I want to like, I want to pause here and see if there's anything interesting to say about kind of the stink that, gets on things that get a reputation as having been reworked or needing to be reworked. 
I mean, I think one one way that's interesting to look at this is that, like, what is the bar that the movie has to vault over to be seen as successful? And the thing is, like, if you look at Cats, even the the most faithful version, let's say a version of Cats without any CGI, where you take great actors and you dress them up in costumes as cats, exactly like the original Broadway vision, that's still going to be mocked by most of the population, as indeed the Broadway musical was mocked uh, You know, way, way back in the day. Uh, like David Letterman used to love to make fun of cats because it's sort of, it's sort of an easy target uh, you know, in the abstract. Um, and so that like cats was always going to be low hanging fruit and the bad execution is the least of cats's problem. Um, where is that? Like the Han Solo movie, it's sort of, sort of the same deal that like, yes, it was marred in the making of it, but already it had this sort of monumental mountain to climb where it's that it's got to be an origin story for this beloved character played by this iconic actor recast by this, like th- this guy that almost nobody knew. Right. And so the idea is that like the solo movie, even under the best of circumstances, is going to be judged harshly, whereas that the Sonic movie really doesn't. And and to be honest, no matter like I've, I've said some really nice things about the Sonic movie, but the Sonic movie is not brilliant. It's not fantastic. It's not like a Pixar you know, work of art where like, you know, every scene and every shot is like the Sonic movie is just like a enjoyable, fun, disposable family entertainment. You know, that does exactly what it's supposed to do. And that's all it has to accomplish. And so that the only problem with the original Sonic trailer is that the character doesn't look like people feel like Sonic should look. And so Sonic, in order to fix that and therefore become as seen as a success, it really doesn't have to accomplish that much. Whereas that the, these other examples, and I put the scary X-Men movie in there too, is that like a, an X-Men movie without any of the X-Men that we know is already going to be an extremely difficult sell. And then add that to all the troubled production, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to have this sort of like aura of like uh, – that that it's like the, the the Walking Dead before it even comes out. Whereas like the Sonic movie really didn't have to do much. It just had to sort of like scratch the nostalgic itch to be all that people needed it to be. And so all they had to do was fix the design, and they it was it's kind of an easy layup. It's interesting to contrast some of what you're talking about, Matt, with the example of say Terminator Salvation, which I feel like has a lot of the same circumstances as something like Solo or Dark a- or Evil X-Men, uh, New Mutants with uh, uh, the new the new the new Rickon Stark X-Men movie that's coming out in 2025. Um, Serpentine, Cyclops, Serpentine. Uh, but uh, but that's but with Salvation you had the situation where the property also had this uphill battle in the sense that it came with prepackaged expectations because it was part of this series of stories and it seemed to be really poorly positioned to succeed in what the combination of giving the people who like the series what they want and also giving something new and also, you know, doing it all without really not only, I mean, you could incorporate the main actor a little bit, but you know, he does not exist the way that he used to. And so he has to be reinvented in some way. And, but salvation is a story where the additional remakes, the traditional narrative is the additional remakes from the studio and the business side of the movie are what doomed it. Whereas with something like the movies you're talking about, it seems like it was really tough. And then, you know, they did things to change it and it helped save it or it didn't. It's just it's interesting that that the starting place is the thing that's similar and the path that you take from there seems sometimes different. And the 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 way place where you end, I don't know, seems to have an echo. I don't Matt, What was your counterexample you were going to bring up? Uh, The Pixar motion picture like authorship process where they have it where they like have a creative brain trust i actually think they call it the brain trust there's a book called uh creativity inc where um a former leader of Pixar like talks about their their process where they have sort of all the generals, all the sort of veterans uh, who sit at a table together and with every film in production, like see it and then offer critiques and talk about it. Um, and so that these these films are sort of shaped or they're sort of forged in the crucible of this this kind of examination and this critique. Uh, and so to, to a certain extent, they can be they can be like 
fake created by committee. And this has like led to it's led to a bunch of projects at Pixar being poop canned, like and even very far along in the process and never seeing the light of day. Um, And it's uh, it's also. Uh, I think led to some pretty fundamental changes in how uh, in how certain films like came about. You know, big big important things that got added or subtracted. And though I can't I can't uh, think of an example right now. Like it's a good uh, you know it, it it's a good example because they seem to be pretty successful. Um, at, they seem to be pretty successful at storytelling. Like it's, it's. There's not one that's bad, right? Like I don't know. I've I've heard people say that certain Pixar films, maybe some of the Cars ones or something, like aren't their favorites. Uh, but but never that they are sort of execrable. Like that they that they just make people angry in the way that that Terminator Salvation, you know, just piss people off. You know, and so the idea that like something something needs to be reworked and even even kind of fundamentally reworked um, is not, uh, you know, I don't know, is not necessarily uh, anathema to, you know, good, good creative process. I, I think, Oh, I mean, I have a theory about it, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that Pete? That was the counter example that, that I, I was going to give that like, not everything that needs fixing, uh, should necessarily have the stink on it because like everything needs fixing until it's, you know, until it's done or abandoned, you know? Yeah, certainly, certainly the notion that you don't need to rewrite your drafts is something that people just need to out of their brain already. Right. That, that the genius comes out on the first run and, and everything since then, the end of the, of inspiration is uh, certainly not the way that writing works. Uh, yeah, so it, it seems I mean, it seems obvious when you talk about it from that perspective that well, of course, things need to be reworked and redone. And, and I guess there is also the desire or the urge to paint certain intermediaries in the process as villains or as as not having a creative spirit or creative soul or creative motivation that's going to necessarily ruin things. But then, if you look at something like. Uh, I mean, what Wally? I don't think you see the stamp of that on it anywhere. Uh, it seems like it seems like a movie that has a voice. It seems like a movie that has a vision associated with it. It seems like it has a real creative soul. And and yeah, maybe go through. Pete, I, you you skyped out there for a second, so I'm gonna. Yeah, it's it's okay. It's skyped out. Pete is uh Pete is is podcasting from a secure, undisclosed location where the internet is not uh, necessarily good. But we'll talk we'll talk about it a little more next week. But the I really um, want to believe he's like broken into the public library after hours to like not to steal any books, but just to steal Wi-Fi. Um, I don't I don't know what to think of that brain trust idea because I, I think what what Pete is getting at is that like on the one hand the idea of like having this committee that understands story and can sort of like streamline these things makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, isn't like this one of the classic knocks on Hollywood that everything feels written by committee and and noted to death, right? And that all these meddling executives are just sort of like uh, smoothing out all the quirky rough edges. And so that like all the plots feel like they were just like, you know, beat by beat. I mean, you want to see a movie that that uh, feels like it's written by committee, uh, just look at Sonny the Hedgehog, which <laughs> is not, and that's not necessarily like a bad thing. It feels very like this sort of frictionless, uh, you know, it goes from like introducing the character, and then there's the scene where like the the animated character and the humans sort of see each other, and they both freak out. They're sort of like reluctantly thrust together, and they sort of like grudgingly agree to help each other. And at first, they don't like each other, and they come to like each other, and they come to trust each other, and they have a fight. Uh, and they sort of make up, and they have to trust each other and work together. I mean, like honestly, like the plot of Sonic the Hedgehog and the plot of let's say Hobbs and Shaw overlap a lot more than I think a lot of people would like to admit huh. where it's sort of like, I, I'm trying to figure out which, why, which why, who are these, who are these Hobbs and Shaw deniers that you speak of who do not want to admit, uh, who don't have, that Sonic is just ripping off Hobbs and Shaw or the other way around. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't know who are these people who think they're so much better than the fast and furious, the, the fury verse that they, uh, you know, that they, that they're better than, 
than that. I, I think so. My theory about the the Pixar brain trust, and I think I I recall reading this in the book, or maybe I like maybe this is just my headcanon about the book, is that while while the um, the brain trust are allowed to ask questions uh, or point out uh, point out problems or kind of raise issues that they are disallowed from being prescriptive, and that the director of the film, who I think is like we can sort of think of as the author in the in the sense of a, the who think of as like the CEO of the film in uh, in their system anyway, even though their films have have writers who are credited on them. Um, like is free to address the feedback in any way that is effective, but they don't, they don't prescribe, they, they identify problems. They don't prescribe solutions. And so that in, in that way, they manage to kind of balance, you know, the imperatives of using the uh, collective wisdom of the great storytellers at, at Pixar who have had, you know, great success and at the same time kind of honoring the the uniqueness of the vision that that should inform um, should inform a particular film. I, I think that's the that's kind of the the way to do it. But the the. Um, you know that that sort of assumes that everyone is on on the same page like the interesting thing that i'm taking away from all of this is the idea that like hey maybe um uh you know maybe not everyone gets it right and like the the audience has an idea of the movie that they want to see the uh executives have a movie that they want to see the writer the star the director you know they'll have a uh, a movie that they want to see and that like when um when all these things are aligned you know what i mean when everyone's vision of the project is sort of aligned that's when you know that's when good things happen but when people are kind of violently pulling back and forth at the material you end up with this like uh rather than a beautiful piece of pizza dough that um you know is is round and beautiful and even you end up with this sort of like misshapen and and uh uh sort of poorly baked pizza dough of varying thicknesses uh and you know in uneven uneven distribution of pepperoni across the uh across the surface of the pizza and the and you know now i'm just hungry <laughs> hungry for good entertainment <laughs> Oh man! I'm like afraid to say anything because my connection is here is so bad that I don't want to screw things up. Yeah, we're gonna uh, Pete. We're gonna go. Uh, we're gonna rework your connection. Is what we're gonna do. We're gonna. <laughs> we're gonna. Yeah, we're I, mean, I also missed Sonic because I moved this weekend. So that's a, that's a real shame. That's uh, a big tragedy yeah. here. I didn't get to see it. You've sort of you've yeah. you've outed yourself now, and and your uh, your internet is not hooked up yet. That's why you're you're podcasting over a cellular connection. Um, from a secure, I, undisclosed location. Can I just bring up one more moment of Sonic that I wanted your opinion on? Because I thought it was very interesting. Um, so at the towards the end of the movie, uh, there's a, a, a government official, like a, a very stereotypical sort of crotchety general with a ton of medals sort of pinned to his chest, shows up at a, the spoilers for the... Can I go ahead and spoil the end of Sonic the Hedgehog? Oh, what? So, Sonic, yeah, I mean, Sonic dies, right? Uh, Sonic, Sonic, well, Sonic does appear to die, and then he is he is risen. He is risen. Hallelujah! He is super quickly risen. Um, there, there is like a very. I mean, if you're looking to write your master's thesis on iconography of Sonic, there is definitely like a questionable scene where like Sonic is like perceived as dead and mourned and sort of eulogized, and then like you know comes back to life more powerful than ever and unleashes his true power level, which is. Uh, Nine thousand, I believe it is in the in the, in the old meme, Pete. Uh, uh, over nine thousand, anyway, yeah. Over, I believe, over nine thousand, which is a little vague. Uh, let's assume that it's like nine thousand in like in like thirty, you know? Because if it was like if it was like nine thousand one hundred, you'd probably say nine thousand one hundred. I'm gonna say it's rounded down. Um, but in any case, like, so this general sort of shows up at James Marsden house, uh, maybe to sort of feel out if James Marsden knows where Sonic is, but he also is sort of like, you know, sir, you've done your country a great service and we have a token of appreciation for you. And he gives him an envelope and James Marsden is like, oh, wow, what is it? Are you paying for like the damage to my house? And he's like, open it and find out. And he opens it and it's a $30 gift certificate to the Olive Garden. 
and and there's this moment of disbelief, and he's like, and he's like, wow, a thirty dollar concert at the Olive Garden, and this sort of crotchety old general just sort of looks at him, is like, they literally have a never ending pasta bowl. It's never ending. <laughs> and then like salutes and smartly gets back in his Jeep and like rides away. And here's the deal. This is certainly a moment of product placement, but it also there's something deeply um, mocking about it that like it feels like the movie is like getting a joke in at the Olive Garden's expense that like it's not even like a really nice steakhouse. It's the, the fact that it's this sort of like very middle America restaurant is like makes it funnier. So I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it's like an example of like product placement done done right, which is that like, yes, you're calling out the Olive Garden, but you also are just sort of like making fun of the fact that like what a lame prize this is that the government is giving you a gift certificate to the Olive Garden to thank you for saving the world. Um, and I guess I guess I wonder to what extent the Olive Garden understands like that there's a punchline there. And if they care or any sort of association that that people are just going to be like, you know, as funny as the Olive Garden is for a punchline, it is true that they have a never ending pasta bowl. Like, are you you asking if the Olive Garden realizes that they're not considered fine dining by the snobs like me? I guess I, I just thought it was an interesting moment because it certainly is a joke that was done in concert with the Olive Garden, but it feels like it's a joke at the Olive Garden's expense. Mm. And I just thought it was like an interesting moment where, you know, they, it, it must have been like a calculation on the Olive Garden's part. that like even being this sort of punchline of being this sort of like most uh, sort of tacky, ugly American sort of like middle of the road. It's like the restaurant that like you go to if you're like a tourist visiting New York and like you want to eat in Times Square and you go to the Olive Garden, right? And like that's the thing that shows that like you have no taste and no culture and no imagination, right? I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to over exaggerate my snobbishness about the Olive Garden, but it is kind of like a pop culture punch. You know, if you're like a stand-up comedian, the Olive Garden is like one of these things you could go to, which is sort of like a a touchstone that like it's even more sort of um bland than like let's say the cheesecake factory which is another one of these sort of like chain restaurants that like americans will like line up for hours for um so i don't know i thought it was an interesting moment where like the product was uh sort of uh, uh voluntarily like took the hit in exchange for the promotion yeah i, I i'm just gonna point out matt that until until january of, of 2018 you wouldn't go to the olive garden if you went to times square and wanted to eat you would go to flavor town guys american kitchen and bar <laughs> uh that's that's where you would go but uh you know it closed in january of 2018 mourn you till i join you uh flavor town uh pete what 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 is up with this company allowing itself to be mocked uh in exchange for product placement in a hollywood movie it reminds me and stop me if you can't hear me it reminds me of a the rock we've talked about the rock on this podcast Saturday Night Live sketch from a number of years ago, uh, I wonder if you guys have seen it, where there is a contest of supervillains to build the most evil invention. Have you seen this Saturday Night Live sketch? Yes, although I can't remember what the punchline is. It's so he built something which is, like, evil in a really straightforward way, as opposed to, like... The, the the sort of like roundabouts grandiose way instead of instead of sort of like gesturing at evil it's actually really straightforwardly evil yes it's one of the someone comes up and has a shrink ray someone comes up and has a freeze ray and the rock arrives with a robot that has been programmed to molest children right and it's very cheap to produce and it's uh it can be manufactured at great scale and it molests children, and that's what it does. And that's the Saturday Night Live sketch. And everyone at the meeting of supervillains is horrified. And he's like, oh, I thought you meant the most evil invention, right? I think he says the sort of Mussolini fed people until their livers exploded or something. And uh, that should be the baseline, right? Like, that's where we should start. Um, but the whole, the whole sketch ends up ending, like, they, they take a break from the conference, and they say they're going to go across the street to get... Beef sandwiches, I believe they say. Uh, I'm quoting this from memory, so I may have it slightly wrong. Little square beef sandwiches. And then the sketch becomes an ad for White Castle, which has little beef sandwiches that they all go see, and it shows the White Castle logo. Um, 
And of course, I can't imagine a worse thing that for a brand to be associated with than a child molesting robot, right? And I, I also have to think that that's product placement, right? That White Castle doesn't just, like, White Castle pays to have their logo and have themselves mentioned on Saturday Night Live. I mean, the more venal version is the Totino's Pizza Roll sketches, which are, of course, the most famous thing to ever happen to Totino's Pizza Rolls by a huge margin, uh, where I've got to think that they're paying for them, right? Uh, where it's like, oh, the role of the Totino's Pizza Roll in a, in a relationship is to be, like, developed slavishly by a partner with no agency in life, right? <laughs> it's just sort of like empty gesture in a, in a meaningless relationship between an automaton and a football fan. Uh, so what I'm saying is that I've seen a bunch of these, and not just lately, but over the past 10 years, and I, I have to think that there is, a, there is value in awareness and in impressions and in being remembered and doing something weird enough that people remember it and talk about it. And so I have to think that Olive Garden appreciates that having a joke made at their expense it at least makes it more likely that their product placement will be remembered than if he just went to the Olive Garden in the middle of the movie and they ate there and then he just left. And there was no, there was nothing about it that was strange or off-putting or weird. I don't know. What do you think, Matt? I mean, I, I'd almost go, I don't know when Matt you're referring to, by the way, but I, I almost wonder if they go one step further and say that, like, if you're a brand and you're saddled with a reputation of being sort of uncool and being, and, and, and like, maybe the way to tackle it is to, like, sort of laugh at yourself. I mean, this is something that brands do all the time online, right? And that uh, I can't believe we're coming full circle to Wendy's, but isn't Wendy's sort of, like, notorious for having, like, an online presence that's, like, very you know, uh, postmodern and very, like, you know, sort of surreal. Uh, and that, like, Wendy's, like, tweets in a in a way that, like, uh, I, I don't know, honestly, like, how much Wendy's they've sold through this, but, like, certainly, like, people that are into sort of social media seem to uh, respect the Wendy's social media team. And I wonder if, if there is something to that, that, like, Olive Garden is sort of like, yeah, like, we'll, we'll be the punchline for, like, the thing that the U.S. government feels is the greatest reward that they can give you. Um, you know, the, the sort of stodgy old general feels like is, like, the, the epitome of fine dining because, like, that's kind of what people think of us already. And being able to admit that makes us cool. Did you did you watch the the unfolding of the Netflix uh, Twitter uh, thing from from December. That was uh, what is something you can say during sex, but also when you manage a brand Twitter account. Did Netflix really tweet that? Yeah. What is uh, at Netflix? Oh, what is wow. something you can say during sex, but also when you uh, when you manage a brand Twitter account, right? So the uh, like a lot of a lot of people came on. So like Yelp, please share your experience with the community. Uh, Penguin Random House, the publisher. I'm going to be doing this in bed all weekend. Snickers. Satisfied? Audi. Zero to 60 in 3.5 seconds. Casper. You might want to lie down for this. And on and on and on and on. There are hundreds. Hundreds. Uh, you know... Um, but that was notably it was it was other people that were tweeting at it right like the the official Twitter. No, no, accounts. no. These are the official Twitter accounts of these brands. At Charmin replied oh, December wait. December fifth, twenty nineteen. Regular users were suggesting this. It was like the other brands where it was like all the brands joined forces, Captain Planet style, and formed a sort of, like all did a little uh, uh, heralds together. Like Charmin, the brand Twitter account for Charmin uh, replied to this, my high knee is Charmin clean. Um, absolute vodka. Slow down. You want it to last, which is a good message about responsible drinking. You know, uh, Pop-Tarts, Pop-Tarts oh, at Pop-Tarts US. Fill me up. <laughs> that is fascinating because at, at Mr. At Mr. Peanut, at Mr. Peanut, I need a nut. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It gets, each one of these tweets represents hours and hours of meetings, right? Represent meetings at like a very high level to discuss exactly what the right tone is. You want it to be funny. 
but you don't want it to like go too far. You don't want it to become the story, but you also like don't want to be like the brand that like that screws the whole thing up. It just it feels like like so many boardrooms across America having to walk this bizarre surreal tightrope to sort of participate in this gag, but at the same time feeling like if you don't participate in it, what does that say? If you don't rise to the challenge, because like you know, Planters did it, so we got to do it. Yep. Uh, let's see. Um, Arby's. <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings, Jimmy John's, Axe Body Spray, DirecTV, Reddit, Planet Fitness, uh, the Boston Market, Snickers, Kettle Chips, um, Instagram, Grammarly, Duolingo. Uh, anyway, these, uh, you know, the, the on and on and on and on. Uh, Snoop Dogg replied. I think you can guess what the joke was. Um and on and on the uh, yeah so so I don't know we I I feel like we live in a in a post rational in a post rational marketing age and and all of our garden letting uh, letting someone throw some shade at them right like like actually the 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 Olive Garden's target market like likes it more that people um. Likes it more that 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 people like me don't like the Olive Garden. Like it, it makes them feel more satisfied about about their choice to to uh, go there. All right, we're uh, we're wrapping up on on time here. Um, oh, at Firefox, we'll keep this private. Um, so the uh, <laughs> uh, man, this just went so fast, guys. It just it went so fast. <laughs> Must have had blast processing. Oh, blast processing. Yeah. Wow. I never thought the Sonic games were very good. I I don't know. It just, it seemed like you would run really, really fast, and then you would reach something where you couldn't tell what the graphics were or where you were supposed to go, or you would be in the water and you would drown. It's possible it's because I was playing on the Game Gear, and so it was a tiny screen in the back of a car, and so that might have thrown some things off. But I kind of felt like the Sonic games were like, the fast parts were easy and the hard parts were slow. And so the, uh, the challenge was always, how do you make Sonic challenging and fast at the same time, which is something they failed at like many, many times. Um, I don't know if there's a really, I'm sure there are really great Sonic games out there, but I know there are a whole bunch of really bad ones because it's quite a challenge. Because the hedgehog moves faster than a person, faster than he can see hypothetically. So how are you supposed to play it? Uh, and it's, I know the music is legendary and that certain games are great, but I do kind of wonder, I, I suspect that Matt, since you haven't really played these games, you can't really speak to whether the movie feels like a Sonic game or not. Um, uh, but my guess is probably not. Um, I mean, I, I, mean, do, I, I know that, um, he, yeah. I mean, I've gone online and I've seen there are a lot of um, there are a lot of Easter eggs that apparently Sonic fans enjoy. Like apparently Sonic uh, in Sonic lore loves to eat chili dogs. And that happens at one point in the movie. I hear even more um, sort of an inside baseball thing is that like uh, Sonic to sort of defeat Dr. Robotnik. Uh, and his creations generally has to sort of land on top of him like eight times. And there is the scene where he actually does that exactly eight times, which you wouldn't notice unless you were like counting. So it really is like an Easter egg for fans that are like paying attention. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are like a bunch of things. And I, certainly there are rings in the game. And there's at least one scene where he drops the rings and the rings fly everywhere. And he has to scramble around and collect as many of the rings as he can, uh, you know, before the enemies get to him. So, like, yeah, they're, they're definitely taking as many aspects of the game and running with them as possible. But I agree with it. No, no pun intended. But I, I agree with you that, like, the Sonic games, there was always this contradiction where they're the most fun when you're just sort of holding right on the controller and just flying as quickly as you can through the course but when you're going that fast there is literally nothing you can do to avoid enemies because you're you're flying through like a screen of seconds and so you just move right until you hit something and then you then you pick up the rings and and move on so there's this contradiction and i I suppose like you know thematically perhaps i could you know you could break down the sonic movie further maybe we'll have to revisit this someday once you guys manage to watch it because perhaps there is a contradiction between sonic wanting to continue to run faster and faster and then hitting these objects and that stop him and that like he has to then regroup from and that like how do you how do you find an equilibrium between sort of running headlong uh to the point where like you can't possibly anticipate disaster before you hit it 
and um, moving so slowly that like it's not fun anymore. Mm. I think you get someone to do a rewrite for you. Or a redesign of your face, at yeah. the least. <laughs> this has been the Overthinking Podcast. Thanks for listening. Matt and Pete, thanks for joining me on this episode. We'll be back with part two of our uh, Sonic the Hedgehog podcast next week. Until then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. I have to say another thing I really liked about the gift certificate gag is that I think it's like a $35 gift certificate. And there's something about that about that, like the U S government wasn't comfortable shelling out like the full $50. It's like a very specific amount. <laughs> do, you uh, think, do you think that originally in the first draft of the script, it was a gift certificate to Sonic? <laughs> I feel like that's too on the nose. I kind of feel like this is a case where it was always the Olive Garden because the Olive Garden is the funniest restaurant you could do it. And they contacted the Olive Garden to explain that, like, we want to make you a butt of a joke. And the Olive Garden is like, we're how much do we need to pay for you to keep this in the final cut? The answer is $35. <laughs> <laughs>